You likely have not heard, but I am reasonably famous for having the world's absolute finest chocolate chip cookie recipe. This is perhaps something that ought to be better known, but over the years, I developed, uh, starting from a solid recipe, but, you know, needed some tweaking and a little bit of change, and I now have the finest chocolate chip cookie recipe that the world has ever known. Now, I had to learn about cooking, and one of the things you learn when you start to cook is the difference between dry ingredients and wet ingredients, right? And, and you have to be careful in measuring, and once again, I've made some changes in that recipe, but one of the things that, let me just help you this morning. One of the things you need to recognize is that flour is not sugar, and sugar is not flour. And as you're going about any kind of endeavor that has to do with ingredients, particularly dry ingredients in baking, I suggest that you remember that. By the way, also baking soda is not baking powder. Those are two separate things. You mix them up to your dismay and a disaster. You say, well, that's kind of a ridiculous way to start a sermon, but I want you to think about that for a moment. Because flour and sugar, both ingredients of equal importance, but vastly different in their function, vastly different in their purpose. You could argue that flour and sugar are equal but they are not the same. They are equal in value and in importance to any recipe, but they're not interchangeable. They're not reversible. You see, equality is not undifferentiated sameness. That seems to be self-evident to us. I think we all would acknowledge that in the foolish illustration of a cookie recipe, that flour and sugar, though equal, are not the same. And yet, we're having to talk about that kind of thing because this basic truth is the kind of truth that people today know instinctively but still deny and suppress. A lot of talk about equality. A lot of talk about gender, as we've seen over the last few weeks. But the truth is, in the first time in history we have to address these issues on a Sunday morning, There's confusion about what a man is and what a woman is. And there's the suggestion often that if there are different roles and different functions, if there are different God-designed dispositions for male and female, that constitutes unfairness and inequality. That's the position of the culture in which we're in. But equality is not undifferentiated sameness. So we're taking time, never thought we'd do this, We're taking time on Sunday morning to ask the question, what is a man and what is a woman? Over the last couple of weeks, we've done a quick survey of God's design for sexuality and gender and the differences that God put into place, what all that means, especially we've looked at sexual expression. But today we want to ask the question, what practical implications in all of this are there that play out in daily life? Are there guidelines Let me say it boldly. Are there guidelines in nature as well as in Scripture? Are there guidelines that govern gender relations? Now, I just want to tell you, because you don't want me to preach all afternoon, I'm not going to be able to address and answer every question or perhaps every objection that might pop into your mind. By the way, that's one of the reasons we've given you these reading lists over the last few weeks because we feel like that God has blessed the church over the last 20, 25 years with outstanding resources to address these issues. But what we want to see this morning, what we want to yield ourselves to is God's Word and God's guideline about the way men are to function and the way women are to function. And though they are completely equal and valuable, there are distinctions in those roles and functions in life, in the church, in the home, and perhaps even in the world. So very quickly, let's go back to Genesis. If you have your Bibles, turn there and look with me in Genesis, and let's remind ourselves about what I called the beautiful order from God's design. There is a beautiful order that is part of God's design, and you see it all the way through the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2. Remember in chapter 1 how often it says this was so, what God had done, it was so, and it was God saw that it was, what did he say? Good. 
It was good. It was good. It was good. And then he created Adam and Eve, the apex of his creation, in his image to represent his glory. And he said it was very good. So there was a beautiful order in God's original design. And we see this kind of summarized in the verses at the end of chapter 1. I'll have them on the screen for you if you want to read them there. The Word of God says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it all. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, read it with me, it was very good. It was very good. So one of the aspects that God reveals in his record of creation is the personhood, the nature of mankind being both male and female. And this is more than just mere physiology. In spite of the issues that we looked at, especially last week, this is not just a matter of sexual activity or sexual capability. Personhood is more than mere sexual identity. Now, be very careful. It's not less, and it's certainly never contrary to God's design of gender. But when we talk about the image of God, we're talking, and when we talk about male and female, we're talking about, indeed, we're talking about sexual differences, but we're talking about far more than physiological differences. We're talking about the very nature of God's image in man and woman. The Dutch theologian Herman Bobbing said it this way, the human nature given to man and woman is one and the same, but in each of them it exists in a unique way. And this distinction functions in all of life and in all kinds of activity. And that's what we'll see this morning. And watch. Part of the assumption of this, from Genesis 1 and 2, even before the fall, which we'll look at in just a moment, part of the assumption is that this is not reversible and it's not interchangeable. Like those cookie ingredients, each has value. Each represents the image of God, but they are not reversible. They are not replaceable. Maleness and femaleness are distinct. This is God's good design, and it is given, don't miss this, it's given not as a a strict set of guidelines or rules to, to him us in. It is given to reflect his goodness. Look at it again in Genesis 1. God saw all, and he saw that in this design for human flourishing, for Adam and Eve to flourish in the garden, he saw that it was very good. So this is God's good design, the beautiful order in his design. But something's gone wrong. And what I would call that this morning is the twisted disorder that comes from man's rebellion, from man's choice, from the fall, the twisted disorder from man's rebellion. And we find that in Genesis 3. And we could just summarize that if you want to look at it for just a moment. You know the story, I assume nearly all of you do. The serpent representing Satan, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I'm reading in Genesis 3 verse 1. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see there he questions the word of God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. By the way, we have no record of God saying that. God's saying you can't touch it. So it appears that Eve goes beyond what God said. And you see the tenor of all of this is ultimately going to be that Eve distrusts the goodness of God. There we are again, back to God's goodness. What Satan ends up tempting Eve with is a question about whether God is really looking out for Adam and Eve's best interest. Now, think this through. Basically, what the evil one is saying is God is hemming you in. You need more freedom. You need more expression. You need to be able to express yourself. And so God is limiting you with his word, as it were. And the serpent lies in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. Those to me are the most tragic words of the book of Genesis. Because Adam was there, Adam was listening, and Adam just went along. And he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then God comes and begins to ask questions, questions that God already knew the answers to, but the questions were designed to highlight what had happened. And you know that. You know that Adam inevitably blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And then we come to the place that we know of as the curse. Now, what I'm going to show you this morning in Genesis 3, nearly all of you know perhaps, but I want us to stop and pause and think it through. Because the disorder that comes out of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, it primarily shows up primarily in marriage relationships. It has its effect in physiology, obviously. It has its effect in, in the earth and in Adam's labor, but there is especially painful results that come There's a painful sense of disorder that comes into marriage relationships. Now, some of you are single, and if you'll just hold on, everything I say will circle around, I hope, to apply to you as well. But in this context, because marriage is generally the norm, that's where you see the effects of the disorder show up in such painful detail. And what we find is there's a curse, not on the man and woman. Adam and Eve were not cursed. But the creation was cursed, nature was cursed, and obviously the serpent. And this curse infects everything, and it especially infects relationships. And so to begin to see this, I want you to skip down with me to verse 17, if you would, and look in verse 17, which we'll see in a moment. Well, let's just consider it. Look in verse 17, Genesis 3, 17. This is... God speaking to Adam, and in verse 17, he says, And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But up in verse 16, Though God is speaking to the woman, there's also implication for the man. Because in verse 16, notice what it says. Speaking to the woman, God says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now let me just tell you, men, here's the origin, ladies as well. This is the origin of what is often called today toxic masculinity. This is exactly at the, at the fall, at the very beginning You have set up, because now there is disorder, what God is saying is that this this disorder that has now come into my beautiful, wonderful, glorious creation, this disorder, here's how it will show up. There will suddenly be, instead of completing one another, you now will compete with one another. And therefore, there will be this conflict where, woman, Eve, your desire will be contrary to your husband and the husband shall rule over you. And the implication seems to be rule over you in a sense of harshness, in a sense that doesn't care about sensitivity, in a sense that doesn't express love. All it expresses is power. And that dynamic shows up. This disorder shows up in rebellion. And the reason we know this is because of especially what we find in the practical commands of the New Testament. Because there are warnings to the man, especially in a marriage relationship, there are warnings about how we care for our wife, how we minister to our wife, how we take care that we do not rule over her in the sense of harshness, which seems to be the idea in Genesis 3. This fallen tendency of disordering God's design, it perverts the responsibility of the husband to protect and to provide for the wife, and instead causes husbands to be harsh and to be domineering. And so look at what you have. For example, note these practical commands. 
in Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, why would God say that if there's not a tendency in our fallenness, in the disorder that comes from sin, if there's not a tendency for us to be harsh? Now, I'm sure none of our men need to hear this, but evidently some men, husbands, need to hear this. Look at the next passage. In 1 Peter 3, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Notice what the Bible says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And in the same chapter, it says, let each one of you husbands love his wife as himself. Why? Because the tendency is that we want to force our rule, that we want to domineer, that the disordering of God's creation results of instead of us loving as Jesus loved the church, we want to domineer and impose power. That's the twisted disorder that comes out of the fall. And it affects all of us, men. But there's also disorder that happens in the hearts and minds of women. All relations are infected. And so these are the ongoing effects of this disorder. And so look again at verse 16. To the woman, what did God say? We'll read it again. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Recently, the term that we've seen for this is radical feminism. This is an unwillingness to cooperate, an unwillingness to follow, an unwillingness to respect your husband. And in the same way we saw with husbands, wives have commands in the New Testament because this is the bent, this is the tendency of the disorder of creation that especially shows up in marriage. And so the dangers, the warnings that we find in the New Testament address this very issue because it's God's design, watch this, it's God's good design, His beautiful design for women to respect and follow, especially their husbands in marriage. And so what do you have in Colossians 3.18? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Same chapter, Ephesians 5, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, all these New Testament passages show us is the outworking of the tendency that the fall has brought into all of us in our sinfulness. Even those of us who are believers, we still struggle with the sinful flesh. And the tendency is, especially it shows up in our marriage relationships, the tendency will be for the husband to be harsh and to domineer over his wife. Oddly, I won't take time to deal with it this morning, but oddly that happens in a passive way. So it becomes passive-aggressive. I'm not a psychologist, but I'm just going to point that out. But the husband has a failure to lead as Jesus leads and loves and serves the church And the tendency also, because it's the disorder, is for the woman, the wife, to become frustrated and to try to lord over her husband, to be contrary, to to live in a way that is contrary to his leadership and to assume leadership. Now, about right now, there are all kinds of questions and objections that are popping through all of our minds. Let me give you a few of them. What about domestic abuse? What about the fact that throughout history, men have been so harsh, men have been so overwhelmingly abusive, women have been mistreated, the victims of power? What about the fact, this goes back to really what we talked about last week, in all this difference of gender and all that you're saying that it's God's good design, what about anomalies in fallen nature? What about the example of babies who are born with ambiguous genitalia? Surely that is a basis for us to throw out the biblical model and find some other answer for how gender works and how sexuality is to be understood. And even about some of the issues we're going to deal with before we're through this morning, sometimes you go to examples in Scripture that seem to be exceptions, especially that's the case with women assuming leadership under the Old Covenant, especially in the role of prophecy from time to time. So you've got all these 
exceptions, all of these questions that are thrown up often. And believe me, it's in all of the literature. I've spent too much of my time this week reading all of the literature. All kinds of objections about these kinds of issues. Let me just summarize. Again, I'm not going to be able to address and answer every one of them. Let me just suggest this. We sang this morning, crown him with many crowns. We acknowledge as we gather together as the church that God is God and we are not. We also come together as a church united in our conviction that God has made his will known in his word as well as in nature. And so whatever the exceptions, whatever the abuses, whatever the egregious failures, by the way, the point is the failures come out of this disorder. It's a, when babies are born that, that there's questionable sexuality, that's a disorder of nature itself. That comes out of the fall. When, when men abuse women, when radical feminism suggests that marriages should be broken up because marriage is modern slavery, you've read that kind of thing. When all of that happens, it's just the ongoing, deepening, doubling down of the disorder that rejects God's good order in creation. And even the biblical exceptions, I would argue, to say it very simply, that the exceptions tend to prove the rule. That what we find is that God has designed in His goodness, He's designed the way men and women are to function together in the home, in the church, and in society as well. So I'm going to suggest to you that even these exceptions, these failures, these anomalies, they should drive us back to the original beauty of creation. Not forsaking God's good design, but to seek it ever more eagerly with humility and with worship. I'm not unrealistic about this. I've dealt with abusive situations in marriage counseling. I know that these objections sometimes carry heavy emotional weight and baggage. They are appealing because they are so emotional. But I want to remind you that we are not driven by our emotions we are driven by the revelation of God and biblical authority. And therefore, as God's people, that's where we stand. So there is the beautiful order that God designed, but all of that got twisted into disorder because of our rebellion, our first parents, and then our ongoing rebellion. But let me take the rest of my time this morning to try to talk to you about what this good design can still look like. God's design can still look like despite the fall. Because we all live in the, in the wake of disobedience and the fall and rebellion, and we still carry seeds of that rebellion in our own hearts and lives, in our flesh. But nevertheless, we can still look at God's design, and we can see it played out in life in a way that gives Him glory. And when that happens, it produces true human flourishing. And that's what we'll consider. For the rest of the sermon, what you need to recognize is this truth that perhaps some of you have seen before, and we've talked about it a bit, that there is, in God's economy, there's this conceptual link between His church and the home. He uses the same language for the church that He uses for the household. We're entitling this series in Titus, Living in God's House. Because God's house is considered a household. Remember when we talked about elder qualifications? One of the fundamental elder qualifications is if a man cannot manage his own home, how will he manage the household of God? And so there is a conceptual link between the church and the home. We see this spelled out in 1 Timothy. And by the way, turn there. I'll read this passage to you, but turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 3, we read these words. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And in the same book, just a couple of chapters later, 1 Timothy 5, listen to these words. Listen to the language he uses for the church as though it's a family or a home. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a, what's it say? A father. 
Younger men as what? Brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. And next week, Dr. Busnitz will be here, and he'll look at the next text in Titus 2. I'm looking forward to this. The next text in Titus 2, which basically spells out what those relationships look like in a discipling context. The church and the home, there are these conceptual links. And we can understand, and we should pay attention, because how we order our homes, how we order our churches, and how we order our relationships in society should reflect God's design, not the disorder that comes out of the fall. By the way, I could make the argument that of all the cultures, all the cultural chains or, or the channels of culture that we find in history, the places where women have been moved from subjection and property to a place of honor and equality and cared for those cultures nearly all have been influenced by Christianity. It's the Bible that brought that about. It's the Bible that transformed a view of women as chattel, women as possessions. When you read the Old Testament and then especially the New Testament, you find a heightened equality, this beautiful equality that is not sameness, but is still equality. You find it all throughout history and in all kinds of civilizations, and nearly all of them where you find that there has been the influence of biblical Christianity, even an unrecognized influence of biblical Christianity. And so what we're talking about for the rest of our time this morning is not so much roles, because we can get ground down into roles, but I want to use the term disposition, because it's not just that a woman or a man is to fill a particular role, it's that in God's design, because of our personhood, far more than just our mere sexuality, there are dispositions through which we should relate to one another. There are dispositions that should inform how we live and how we relate to one another, not just in marriage, as we'll see, but in the church as well. And all of this is revealed in God's design. So three categories. The first one is in the church. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Here's what the Bible says, and this is not the only text but it is probably the central text that is often problematic in our culture today. And in some churches, this would represent the last sermon I would ever preach in the church. I'm glad, at least I hope that's not the case here. But what God's design can still look like despite the fall in the church. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So the issue is prayer and worship and holiness. Verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So again, not an externalism, but an internalism. So there should be this... Uh, passion for holiness and godliness. The word is right there at the end of verse 10 with good works. And so whether male or female, you see the equality here? Whether male or female, the point is holiness and godliness and humility. And I would add a sense of equality because we all worship together. But then in verse 11, there is a specific guideline that is rooted in the disposition that God has built into maleness and femaleness as it's supposed to be expressed in the church. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, let me just stop and point out in verse 13, you see the first word there. It says, for Adam. This is the reasoning. The reasoning has to do with, let me say it this way, the order of creation. What is now disordered in so many people's minds, Paul goes back, and there's no reference here to some kind of radical feminism in Ephesus. This is what some people reinterpret, 1 Timothy 2, that there was a radical woman's movement in Ephesus, and that's the reason Paul has to deal with this to Timothy, but this doesn't have anything to do with us. No, he doesn't ground it in the problem at Ephesus. He grounds it in creation. 
And he says, men are to lead in the church, and women are to follow in the church because of the order of creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Those may be the most important words in the text. And then in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Paul isn't building out a whole theology of Genesis 3. Ultimately, he believed Adam was the federal head. He was the one responsible. But he's dealing with the problem of rejecting God's order. So what you find here is basically two practical manifestations of the way God's order should work in the church. Men are to serve as overseers, or the term we use here is elder. This is the term that Paul used earlier in the book. Men are, or he, excuse me, later in the next chapter, chapter 3. Men are to serve as overseers and elders, and men are to preach and teach in gathered groups. In matters of teaching the Word and exercising authority, the disposition of male leadership should be put on display. Men are to lead, women are to follow. I I could stumble around and try to find some less offensive-sounding way to say it, but this is what the Bible says. And there's a danger here. Let me just pause. There's a danger here that basically implies that we know more than God does. That somehow we're more enlightened than God. So we, we can't take the position this takes because it's so offensive in our culture as though somehow God stumbles over His words. But He doesn't. We're the one that stumbles because we don't want to give offense. And I hope I've already acknowledged to you there is plenty of offense that has been given. And none of this justifies offense or abuse or the disorder that we've looked at. But this is what God says. And so anywhere where biblical doctrine is brought to bear with authority, men are to be the ones to do so. By the way, why would we ever want the Bible taught without authority? That's another question. And what Paul links here is leadership in the church and dispensing God's truth to a mixed group. Now the question obviously is, clearly women can teach. If you note down below, digging deeper, there are all kinds of references in the New Testament to women teaching. But in the gathered group of the church, in a mixed group, there should be a reflection of God's order. That's simply the way God has designed it. And let me, without being pedantic, can I just go back and show you again verse 12? where I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It is incomprehensible that there are churches that read verse 12 and say, here's what this means. I do permit a woman to teach and exercise authority. You have to ask, how do they get there? God's design should still look like it looks in creation, in the church. It should also look this way in the home. Remember, there's this linkage between the way the home looks and the way the church looks. And so look at what God says in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 2. By the way, we could turn to Ephesians 5 this morning, but we won't do so. But look at 1 Timothy 2. I do not permit a woman, we've already read it, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Here's the reasoning. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, can I just stop here and say, I don't think this means, and when I say I don't think, my wife says, well, who cares what you think? That's what she she often points that out to me. I do not believe that this means that women are inherently more deceived, more prone to deception. Some people interpret it that way. Don't think that's the point. If women are prone to deception, women should never be teaching. They shouldn't be teaching our children. They shouldn't be teaching women's Bible studies. If they're prone to deception, we shouldn't let them handle the Word of God at all. But that's not what this is implying. The deception was the disorder. It was was Eve being confronted by Satan, and instead of Adam stepping up, Eve taking the leadership and giving to the man, and the man ate. It was the twisting of the order from the very beginning. That was the problem. Is Adam's ultimate failure, as we've seen theologically. And so then you get to verse 15, which is going to sound odd if you've never read this before, and I assume some of you perhaps have not. 
But verse 15 says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you. Just hold on. She will, you all are really quiet. I, I, I say these things where I think you're going to, you must be tense. You must be uneasy. I don't know. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what does this mean, saved through childbearing? I'll give you some of the historical options. Some people say it just means that when she's delivering children, she'll be saved through the pain of childbearing. I don't know if any of you who have delivered children would say that that's what this verse means. Some people think it means that they'll be spiritually saved by having children. So if you have children, it means you're saved. Obviously, that's not supportable by Scripture at all. Some people believe that it, and in the early church, this was often the interpretation, or sometimes the interpretation, that this was being saved or delivered like all of us through the childbearing, capital T, capital C, in other words, the birth of Jesus. I don't know what that would have to do with the text. The context that we're looking at was Eve's deception. How will she be delivered? How will women be protected from deception? By basically, let me paraphrase it, by fulfilling the order that God designed. By the childbearing is just shorthand for the call for a woman to encourage and support and be a completer of her husband. That in partnership they manage their family and they fill the earth, as it were, even given the curse. And the, the problem is, is that when men and women reject that order, it exposes women to deception. She's not going to be delivered. The word saved is a generic word that often means spiritual salvation, but it often sometimes means just deliverance. She'll be protected or delivered through. And that seems to be the way Paul is using the word here. That the deliverance from this deception is by prioritizing God's design. In other words, the disposition of seeking God-designed and God-ordained priorities. Now, can you catch the cruel, tragic irony in this? That the very way God says women can be protected and preserved and delivered is the exact truth that is rejected and mocked by our culture. Do you want to know why our culture is not working you want to know why everything seems like it's fraying? Is because these fundamental truths have now been disordered. You have God's original good design, and then you have from the fall the disordering of God's design. And it puts women especially at risk. The home, the church, and they're very similar. But let me show you what this looks like in the culture. And if you use the sermon outline that we put on the back of the bulletin, you'll notice there are scripture references by the home, and there are scriptural references by the church, but I don't think you have a scripture reference by the culture, do you? And there's a reason for that, because the Bible says very little about this. I would love to give you all kinds of scripture references that say this is how men are to function in culture and this is how women are to function in culture. But the truth is there are no specific commands about that. There are inferences from the Old Testament. We find some examples from the way Israel worked. But ultimately these are all matters of conscience. Now I have my opinions. I've taught you before. When I say it's my opinion, you can immediately say that doesn't matter, right? I have opinions, for example, about whether my granddaughters should be drafted into the army and fight in warfare. I have strong opinions about that. But at the end of the day, I have no scriptural text to back that up. And so all I'm going to tell you is, I can't speak with any biblical authority to how maleness and femaleness ought to work out in the culture. But I can say with confident biblical authority this is how they should function at home. This is how they should function in the church. Now, before I close, let me circle back to singleness. Because some of you are single. Some of you are single for a time. Some of you, it appears, might be single as a lifestyle. Some of you are happy being single. Some of you are not happy being single. And I want to tell you, I don't know from experience how to speak into your experience. 
All I can know and all I can say with some degree of confidence is what the Bible would imply about your state of singleness. And I would say that it's important for you to understand, based on everything we've said today and last week especially and the week before, let me be clear, that God's good design is not solely limited to marriage. And often we unintentionally give that impression in our churches. Because we do think families matter. We think there are troubles in families that the church should address and support. But sometimes you who are single are left with the idea that true humanity isn't experienced until you are in marriage. And especially that's the case these days when ultimately true humanity and individualism is rooted in sexual expression. And if you're going to obey the Bible about sexual expression, the implication is as a single person, you're not engaged in sexual activity. And therefore, the message the culture sends to you is, you're not even human. You're not even whole. All I would tell you is that that is not what the Bible would teach. As a single representation of God's image, you are fully man or fully woman, apart from marriage. You are like Jesus was. Jesus was fully human, yet never married. You are, according to the Bible, whether for a time or for your life, you are unusually gifted for God's purposes. You have the potential of investing in kingdom purposes that a married person does not have because a married person takes a married person takes on the responsibility of their spouse. You have a new family which is called the church. We've already shown you that language. And your femaleness or your maleness can find expression the disposition of leadership by serving, the disposition of service and respect whether it be male or female, can be expressed in the body of the church, in the family of the church. And I thought something I hadn't really realized before until this week as I was preparing this sermon, your status reflects what we all will be eternally. Heaven's not going to be a bunch of families and then there's a street on the streets of gold for single people. The implication of Scripture is that, (coughs) excuse me, while I believe maleness and femaleness continues into eternity, marriage does not. So your status now reflects what we will be eternally. So your dispositions at your job, your dispositions in the church, your dispositions with other people who are married, Women should be a disposition of nurturing and completing and and serving. Men, that disposition should be of guarding and of courage and of leading, but leading through service. This is what God calls us to be as men and women, whether married or single. Three takeaways. I know I've given you a lot of information today. Three takeaways. The first is this about all of these issues and everything we've talked about, I think it's important for us to recognize there has been hurt and harm. There is even today a hard patriarchy movement which basically suggests that women should stay in the kitchen and make sandwiches. That's their existence. I think the hurt and harm that's often done is in response to illegitimate positions but then the response takes an extreme format. As I've already told you, I have experience with counseling in abusive marriages. And so if some of you experienced abuse either at the hand of your parent or at the hand of a spouse, I do not in any way want to ignore the pain of that. I don't want to pretend like there's not been hurt and harm that has been done. And that hurt and harm is part of this big problem of the disordering of God's good. It's not compromise for us to recognize that. It's not compromise for us to acknowledge that there has been much evil and much hurt and much harm that's been done in the name of biblical role models or simply in the name of men versus women. The Word of God tells us that God's design is good. Sinful men and women have been disordering it from the beginning. 
we should recognize the hurt and the harm. My second takeaway for you is we have to retain our courage and faithfulness. We have to retain our courage and faithfulness. Folks, you understand surely, truth clarifies, but it also divides. And it divides in necessary ways. And we should never, indeed we must never, apologize for God's good design. We can't apologize for that. We don't have to demonize, for example, churches that don't interpret this the way we do. We don't, have to, we don't have to act as though we're the only ones who have a corner on truth. But at the very same time, if we believe this is the way God has ordered both the home and the church, then we must say so with courage and with fidelity and with faithfulness. Because as I've already implied, sometimes our cultural discomfort implies that we're wiser than our good God. Are we embarrassed about what God says is true? Then what does that say about our view of God versus our desire to be accepted? This is a time for faithfulness, and it's a time for courage. Recognize the hurt and harm, retain courage and faithfulness, and then finally, rejoice in God's goodness and forgiveness. God has revealed how we are to function as male and female, and it is a good design. And here's the point. Anyone here have a perfect heart? Anyone here have spotless motives? Anyone here always respond with sacrificial love? Those are only found in Jesus and His good news, the gospel. And all of us, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all of us will fail. None of us can fulfill these dispositions, these roles with absolute faithfulness and absolute fidelity. We need to forgive one another, but we ultimately need the forgiveness that comes from God. And this has been known and recognized and addressed from the very beginning because if we went back right now to Genesis 3, I would have you look at this verse. It's in verse 15, where God says, speaking to the evil serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. And we have believed, the church has preached and believed that that is a promise that God would send one who would crush the serpent, who though his heel would be bruised, the head of the serpent would be crushed, and this is the promise of our Redeemer. This is the gospel, and this is our hope. You hear a message like this, and almost inevitably some of you think, well, how's that really work at your house? And you would probably not be surprised with all of my failures. But we cling back we rest in the forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ. We do this trying to be a faithful church. We do this in our families trying to be faithful. We do this as single Christians who are living out in the world to try to express what it means to be generally biblically feminine or generally appropriately masculine. And in all of these things, we find that we have successes, but we also have failures. But we are dependent upon the grace of God that we find in Jesus Christ and that good news is our only hope. And we are to rejoice in it. Not just to rejoice in the gospel, but to rejoice in the good design that God has left us in His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that You would open all of our hearts. I speak today to a diverse crowd. There are undoubtedly some here who have never in a real and personal way yielded their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. The call of biblical authority perhaps is confusing to them or means little to them. I pray that in a surprising way perhaps you would use our commitment to your revealed word 
to strike their hearts with the rebellion that lives in all of us and that they would recognize their sin and their need of a Savior. Father, for very many of us who are here, we swim in the waters of this world and this culture, and we tend to stutter or stammer when it comes to to the places where you have made your will and your design known, and yet it is contrary to what is accepted in our culture. And I pray that you will give us a renewed confidence in your truth and in your word and a courage and a faithfulness to say, not with harshness and not with hatred, not with vitriol, but with confidence and with love that we would say, thus says the Lord. This is what God has said. And this is how we'll live. Father, I pray for those who hear this kind of message about authority and about submission, and they have been abused by those in authority. Maybe in a church, maybe their parents, maybe in a marriage, maybe at work, maybe in an employment situation. I pray, Father, that you would comfort them as they grieve that pain, but I pray that they will not jettison your truth because of it. I pray that they will see this morning that those kinds of hurts and that kind of harm comes from this very disorder that we're talking about. It comes from rejecting your word and your grace and your revelation. And then, Father, I pray for our marriages, that you would strengthen our marriages, that you would help husbands to be faithful husbands, that you will help wives to be completers who are eager to partner with their husband. And Father, I also pray for our single people. I specifically pray that you would protect them from sexual sin in this mad, insane world in which we live and help them pursue holiness and equip them to do so whether they are single for a brief time or whether they live their entire lives in singleness. I pray they will find an unusual strength and encouragement to live lives that are holy. And Father, I thank you for heaven. I thank you for the promise that for those of us who are forgiven, not because we are better than anyone else, but because you have saved us, we have the promise that one day these kinds of hurts and this kind of harm and all of this disorder, it will all be done away with, that you will make all things new and your good, glorious design will be enjoyed by your own forever. What a wonderful promise that is. May that promise strengthen us and encourage us today and throughout this week and as we live in this world. We pray these things in the glorious name of our Savior Jesus, who is our only hope. In His name we pray. Amen.